0: Hi there, this is Carlos Del Junco and you're listening to Talking Blues.
1: So how have you been? You know, I've been good. I've been
0: like one of those privileged people that I, you know, I have a little house out here in Port Hope, Ontario, like a, Across the street from the Ganaraska River, where I watch the salmon run, although don't get me started about all that stuff. <laughs> uh, I mean, the river's really low this year. Oh, right. And there might be a few reasons for that, but um, you know, I live in this little paradise, um, and I go out. I'm five minutes away on my bicycle to go out bicycling and get some exercise. And
1: yeah, it's it's so nice here. And um, I remember when you moved out. Was was it a Was it a difficult decision to move out of the city?
0: 2007. Uh, No, because, you know, my girlfriend at the time, we were looking for a place that was just, it was just, we couldn't find enough room for a place in Toronto. And so, you know, um, it made sense to, you know, and we, we came out looking, we stayed with a friend, and it's just such a beautiful town. Except for, you know. Chemical on the waterfront, but uh, <laughs> the, the cancer rates aren't any higher up here. That's chemical. They refine some, do some refining of uranium and whatnot and make
1: isotopes. And- you lived in the middle of the city. Did you, do you miss the city at all? Probably not.
0: You know, I thought I would initially, and I thought I'd never moved out of the city, having grown up downtown. And, but now that I'm out, I have no desire to move back down. It's, it's funny. You know, you're getting older. It's been, what's, what's, what's see it's been 15 years no 17 years since I moved out so uh no 15 years
1: yeah and and career-wise or work-wise does that affect things greatly
0: you know I do miss that connection uh of going out just really easily and seeing music but I was never one much to go out and watch stuff uh or unless it was a concert you know I really wanted to see but um that ability to go out and sit in easily that was something i you know i used to do every now and then if i wasn't doing a lot of gigs and so i can talk about that because actually lately i've been going in and sitting in with julian fouth um it only ends up happening once or twice a month he has a house gig at a little great little place out in the danforth near coxwell between coxwell and gerard called sauce and it's um he has a little piano gig there and sings. And, um, and I always go and play the first set when I go in there. We're talking about
1: making a record down the road. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That would be a, an interesting combination.
0: Yeah, we're just getting acquainted and feeling each other out musically and stuff. And
1: yeah. And how does that happen? Like, do you, I mean, obviously you approach him and see if he could sit in and then kind of figure out whether it's, it's musically workable. But how do you make that decision to say, well, maybe I'll check out Julian? Um,
0: You know, he hired me for a couple of guest spots and then I was like, oh, this is really fun. You know, and we were connecting and I just thought, so, you know, when COVID hit, I think that's basically when I, um, when things weren't shut down, you know, we started playing together at this this place on Tuesday nights as often as I could. I mean, it just depended on schedule and stuff and weather.
1: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I'll have to come and check that out um let's go back go back way before COVID um I know that you took music before you played harmonica you played one or two other instruments (laughs) took lessons I and in one article I read you even remember the teacher's names but neither one of them kind of lasted very long
0: right yeah well I think I was eight maybe and I took violin lessons with miss grundy or gundy grundy i think at the
1: royal conservatory for all of three weeks before i quit <laughs> and, uh, was it your choice uh, of the violin or was it your parents choice
0: i think i might have been my parents choice i mean you know um and then when i was 10 you know my mother had some class had classical training on the piano and so she thought oh let's try the piano and and i lasted six months and i made it up through a, a up to the beginning of grade one and then quit, you know, conservatory. But the thing that I remember so distinctly is a couple of things. Um, one is that I could never read music until my mother played it and I heard her play it. And then I'd have to watch my fingers doing what they're doing. You know, I just like, oh, okay, da 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 da. And then, you know, I could play it once I heard her play it and the rhythm and everything. But I was never good at trying to really make the, the, the dots on the page connect to what I was playing. But I also have this vivid memory I think one of my earliest memories of, because my mother used, she took up the flute actually after I was born. And, and I'd be sitting on the floor and I I don't know how old I was like five or six or something, but I had this distinct memory of she was playing this riff and she was playing it over and over and over again. And I just, and then finally it was like, I, she did something and I thought, oh you got that one you know I remember saying to her right like oh you got that one and I think that just sitting there playing I was the youngest and sort of separated in age more in years than my other siblings so I often was hanging out on my own uh at, at times rather than with the siblings anyway and so I think that stuck with me you know I've, I've been a very stubborn personality and sort of obsessive when I take something up and I I stick with it, you know, until I get it, until I get it right. I think,
1: you know. But I, I wonder I was probably an influence. I mean, the fact that you took those two instruments and and didn't connect with it, decided that this wasn't the thing for you, that could have been it for your musical pursuit.
0: Yeah, I suppose. Um, you know, I was a teenager, fourteen, and um a friend of mine played the harmonica and and you know I just connected with the sound and the sound of bending a note and the expression and so I picked one up and never looked back basically did it come easy to you come easy I mean you know I figured stuff out reasonably fast and I took I mean I took lessons with people we all know in the Canadian Toronto blues community Michael Pickett I took a couple lessons with him and then Fraser Finlayson bless his heart he passed on about 10 years ago or so or um and uh, i took a couple lessons with him and then we ended up becoming friends years later and would hang out every now and then and roly platt i took a few lessons with him and you know we're still in touch i haven't been in touch with michael pickett in years though but um yeah wow and then the rest was just listening to records and transferring it all i've talked about this in other interviews but you know um uh eventually i convinced my mother to get one of those uh, uh turntables that have a pitch control speed to make sure like some of those old little walter recordings were not quite in the right pitch on the reco- on the tape recorder or whatever right. make sure they're in the right key put it into a mono tape deck and then i could slow it down to half speed and and the half speed thing like it was an octave lower but you could hear and dissect the you know like these really fast riffs if you had to and, and that's what I did for years until I discovered this software uh, in the early 2000s, maybe, called Transcribe. There's tons of slowdown slow down software, but this one called Transcribe, I haven't, even the developer says, if you found something better than this app, let me know. He has a link to all the slowdown apps on his website because his really is the best. And so I'm all about using this slowdown app with my my students, my harmonica students and stuff. And it's a, it's a just an amazing uh piece of kit that helps you listen better and I mean once you understand how to use it well.
1: I just can't imagine it still being that easy to learn off slowing slowing down music and figuring out what notes go where.
0: Well, I mean that's sort of the tradition, you know, the oral tradition, how most people mm-hmm. learn in blues and jazz, really. I mean, then the smart ones learn how to read as well. But um uh, you know, I understand written music, but yeah, it's just something. The thing is, the sooner you start doing it and exercising that muscle of connecting what you hear to the rhythm and, and the shape of the, the melody, and one, it's as simple, I always say, as getting from one note to the second note. And then you add a third note and a fourth note. And then eventually you just start your ears grab bigger and bigger phrases all in one go the more you do it. And unless you start doing it and, and doing the work on your own, if someone gives you a piece of paper and tablature, Harmonica tablature, right you know, it, it's just a distraction for what you should really be doing, which is learning how to listen well and, and absorb. I only use tablature for things like really basic exercises that are going to be repeated, maybe in different keys or different harmonica positions that we talk, you know, we talk about positions, and then it sort of makes sense to use tablature for that because you're just repeating a pattern of notes, but in a different part of the harmonica or different key center you know
1: so for you was it was it the harmonica or was it the blues like is it was it the pursuit of learning how to play the blues or was it the pursuit of playing learning how to play the harmonica and the blues was the best genre to go after
0: I think both at the same time but I mean you know as a teenager and and it set the standard uh into my into my older years here like I, I've always had really eclectic taste and my the records I have put out reflected that so while I was listening to blues, a long-winded answer to your question, um, it was the harmonica which connected to the blues for sure. And I went out and bought a bunch of blues harmonica records. In fact, I just started buying tons of records of anything that I could find because it was like, okay, what's this? What's this? And different styles, starting with Paul Butterfield, of course, Little Walter, Sonny Boy, you know, you know James Cotton, all those guys. Um, but at the same time, I was listening to like my. Uh, I mean there was classical music in the house uh, I was listening to jazz rock fusion in the, in the 70s those things are prog rock you know I'm a huge or at least I was sort of still am you know the things they, they say the things that you listen to as a teenager stick with you. Mm-hmm. but yes was one of the, the prog rock band yes was one of my all time favorites and I saw them live you know a bunch of times five times and then I said if they ever went to Massey Hall I'd go back and see them they did in the late 90s and then I went back every year to see them, and the, you know, like the magic without the drugs, even <laughs> was still there. You know, like for me, and and you know, in uh, whatever the point is, I've always had eclectic taste. and and when I get into something, I I obsess about it. And lately, for instance, you know, if I read a biography about a musician, like um, a cup two or three years ago, I read a really good one about Paul Desmond and the jazz saxophone player i've always admired his and like stan gets that they're sort of very lyrical you know melodious kind of style of playing just in terms of embracing melody and what it means in the context of a song and and you know even paul desmond takes it even further in that it's sort of about simplicity he was sort of almost anti-bebop guy he could do some of that stuff but you know he was always about carving the melody and 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 playing really nice phrases and breaking up carving these phrases through the chord changes and anyway so i after reading the book you know of course with streaming services you just access all the recordings they are talking about and so i would go through all these recordings and then and and you know you can quickly just go to the next song if you don't like something and make up my own personal playlists of these guys like paul desmond and then i would just listen and listen and listen and then load one or two of his songs into transcribe and try to break down a phrase or two and, and figure it out in different keys and then uh and then the last guy that I've become completely obsessed about is Bill Frisell, you know and I bought some of his records back in the 90s a guitar player and he's an amazing composer and he mixes everything from you know jazz blues country pop a lot of popular music reinterpreting even pop tunes he writes some amazing tunes but and just the most beautiful, beautiful things. I mean, he, he can also be really noodly, but he is. I mean, it, for me, it's sort of become my salvation musically, especially in the time of COVID. You know, it relaxes me and and de-stresses me, and and it's smart and it's interesting and it's sometimes bluesy, sometimes country, sometimes you know that kind of stuff, right? I I, I still love love playing blues, but I listen. To hardly any blues, ironically.
1: Let's say you you know you read this book about Paul, and you think, man, I got to check out his stuff. You check out his stuff, you create playlists, and you dig deep into his cat, uh, into his catalog. And, and does that inspire you <clears throat> to play not like him, but play with some influence by him? Do you create? Oh, absolutely, okay.
0: absolutely. I mean, you know, that's the reason for doing that. You know, I mean, the one thing I can you know, vouch for 100% when you learn to transcribe well by audio, just listening and repeating what you hear is that you're unconsciously internalizing that vocabulary. If you like something, you identify with it, you know, break it down, whatever it is, you know, and, and absolutely it comes into my playing. And, and, you know, I like to think of myself as a pretty well-rounded, you know, I'm not just regurgitating a bunch of little Walter licks, I never spent a lot of time learning a lot of the stuff that he did. I love Little Walter. I love putting on, you know, every now and then I'll just put on a one or two of his old sort of classic CDs. And but it's it's not something that makes me want to go, yeah, I want to play that as much as well, back in the day. Ironically, I came to Little Walter more late. And, you know, I was into the Paul Butterfield initially. Lee Oscar, I was still listening to Little Walter, and I was trying to learn some of his stuff, absolutely. But um, you know, Rolly Platt, for instance, he's a guy that got really good really fast, and he was doing just amazing, and still is um, stuff uh, with these different bands he was playing with. And and here's he's a, he's a voice that I you know think is a sort of a progressive guy. And he just learned by ear. In fact, he didn't do a lot of transcribing. He just did a lot of playing. There's more than one ways to skin a cat. We did a, a, a webinar together about practicing. Um, and we talked about how we each approach things.
1: At one point, you, you hear Howard Levy. And, yeah. and his technique of overblowing changes you. <clears throat> tell me about that yes. impact and tell me what that was like.
0: Right, no, uh, yeah, of course, good question. i I had actually figured out what overblowing was by accident, and, and then I'd heard about Howard, and then when he said, I heard that he plays in all 12 keys, I was like, oh, that's really cool. Okay, and then I found out he's teaching at this camp in West Virginia. This is a sort of blues uh, swing week that they would have different themes at this Augusta Heritage Center in West Virginia. Elkins, West Virginia, and different music themes throughout the summer. Anyway, so I'd go down for this blue swing week, and he was teaching there, and I caught Howard there the last four years that he taught there. I think he taught a total of eight years. This was just before he joined Bela Fleck and the Flecktones in the early nineties. Anyway, and that was just like ten guys, you know, worshiping at his feet, and tape recorders going, and trying to, you know, just it was more about jazz theory than it was about how to play the harmonica you know and he talked about overblows and stuff but um and that of course turned my head around and you know I've mainly tried to especially in the early days was just trying to incorporate using the te- te- technique in my blues playing but then eventually I started getting into some jazzier stuff and more eclectic stuff as my my, my eclectic records reflect and a lot of instrumental stuff.
1: So when you and, went to the camp, how old were you? Yeah. At what stage of your life were you at?
0: So that was, okay, I was born in 58, and I went the first time in 88, 1988. At this point, are you so,
1: thinking that you're going to be a musician full-time?
0: Uh, that's a very good question, because in fact, let's see, so, so I was 30 when I first went down to check out Howard. And then, in fact, I didn't decide to become a full-time musician until I was about just about when I was 30, I had an epiphany. And, uh, I was also invited to play, uh, r- sort of write and play music for this production, play production by Thompson highway called dry lips on a move to campus casing. And, and, uh, I at the same, but the same time I was going to U of T I'd finished five years, four years at, uh, Ontario college of art, not called, uh, OCAD, but, um, I could put some of those courses towards a university degree thinking I was going to go into teacher's college. And so I signed up when I was 30 to go to U of T and I signed up for three part-time courses, dropped out of two, finished one, and thought, oh, I'll just take one course a year because I really want to play music. Signed up for another one the following year, dropped out of that almost immediately because I had an offer to go out on the road with Thompson Highway and to Winnipeg for 5 weeks and then and then Ottawa at the at the big theater there at the National Arts Centre for 4 weeks and then at the Royal Alex in Toronto
1: for 5 or 6 weeks. I mean it was a really successful play. Well how did, how did and, that happen? I mean, how did, how did you wind up being the composer of the music for that play? But anyway,
0: that's just just to put all in perspective. Uh sorry to interrupt. Um that's when I decided to become a right, full-time okay. musician. Basically when I was 30 31. And then I never looked back. And and you know I was mostly sort of full time up until that time. I was working at a poster shop. Um, Sorry,
1: what was your question? So, so how did that opportunity to to work with Thompson Highway to compose the music for that play happen? Sure. Um, I guess he'd heard about me through the
0: grapevine, and he he might have. I'm I'm sure he must have talked to a couple other people. Although I do remember there was a harmonica workshop at the Black Swan, and I can't remember Hall who was playing there at that particular one, but he came and thought, okay, hmm, I think I like the way he plays and his versatility, and that's probably when he decided to use me. Um, and and the, the the composing so much was really just going to the rehearsals and, and, you know, the different, I sort of play these soundscapes for different characters. And one of the characters in the play actually plays harmonica, but it's sort of his dream and about his dream and stuff about how white people basically, you know, culture and, and, and it's about, yeah, a lot of things, but basically about how white people sort of scoot over mm. in, um, indigenous culture and, but sort of the first half was like a comedy and then the second half is sort of a tragedy and uh it was a very amazing and brilliant play and very intense some of the scenes that i and scenes that i had to play through um but anyway so it was just something that sort of happened organically through working with the actors and and watching them and then you know all this riff and then thompson highwood listen and and eventually came up something. And it, it actually took a few shows before I was sort of playing more or less the same thing, you know. And, and so because it was important to give them cues. And, you know, it was something I was nervous. It was the first, thing I, first time I'd ever done anything like this. So. And I didn't have anything written on paper, so to speak. So,
1: so when you decide to notes. go professional or pursue this mm-hmm. as a career, how much gigging were you doing before then? Obviously, a bit.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, I, you know, through art school, I did my first gig with a math well, gig. No, I did my first performance in front of people with my math teacher in grade 10 or 12, 11. He um, played a couple of lead belly songs for a student talent night. And then in art school, I did my first paid gig on some place on Young Street, north of Wellesley with this band. I can't even remember. I can't even remember what we were called, but it was a super eclectic band. It was third blues, third third reggae, because one of the guys in the band loved reggae, and then, then the third Latin, because the guitar player loves Santana. <laughs> <laughs> it was a complete mishmash. But that was there. I was in getting, you know, my feet wet exposed to all these different types of music, right? So, um, and then uh, I, I got a grant to go study sculpture independently in kind of a fifth year, but not really part of RCA. And then so 83, 84, I'm back and I'm out of school. I got a job framing posters from my old art high school teacher, and that was a full-time, part-time job. And then at around that time, I met Buzza Upshaw and it became part of that band and was learning to play horn lines with Ed Zankowski, the saxophone player. It was a five-piece band. Um and and so sort of cutting my teeth there uh we We played for a, two years in a row almost every weekend at chicago 's diner downstairs oh. and and then and then um I formed a band with Kevin Cook in the early nineties called the del Comos and again, that band was like a third of this, a third of this, and a third of this like it was just a mishmash of blues and and fusion that fusiony tunes that the bass player wrote and you know so I mean I just was drawn to that stuff and uh there's a couple of videos actually on youtube you can find of the del from some recording someone made playing at albert's hall and one of them is the one song is called river and the other song is oh what was it called um it's a tune in five four sort of like of this bluesy thing and it was kind of uh blues chord changes but with a sort of calypso groove in five four uh well that was called river sorry uh and then something else. Oh, uh, uh, a tribute to Frank Zappa with about four different grooves in in one song called "Frankly Blue," and and you know the the, the music still stands up the test of time. I mean, you know, it's dated in its own way, uh, clothing, hairstyles,
1: whatever. <laughs> but uh, you know, before I ask you about pursuing this <clears> as a profession, <throat> tell me about your interest in sculpture and art
0: yeah i i mean i was always visually uh visually artist uh inclined uh i as a young teenager basically uh my father had been an architect and he was also an art collector and he encouraged me to you know pursue my abilities as a using a pencil and just doing these really detailed drawings and and then so going to art school i just i stuck with fine arts and then majored in sculpture in my last year. And work towards a grant that helped pay my way to go study independently in in Italy, and working with you know the white marble that Michelangelo used, and and li- literally working in a little town in a studio artist studio where these artisans go and work nine to five, and I took a crash course in, in Italian to sort of get around and, and get an apartment and. And also talk to the artisan, the, the, the guys who were worked their nine to five job carving, you know, the, the, the owner would say, Hey, we need another Micah, uh, the David for this you know, piazza <laughs> down in this city. Right. And these guys would, you know, with these calipers and measuring tools would make exact replicas of, of various sculptures. Wow. And you can also do with, um, scaling things down and up. It's a, so I learned
1: how to do that stuff and,
0: you know and with my own obsessive kind of personality I just dove right into it and
1: uh, so tell me about that experience of being in Italy experiencing that was it I mean obviously it wasn't enough for you to pursue that as a career but tell me about what that experience was like
0: well it was amazing I mean gosh I mean you know going down to the local lattaria and buying fresh pesto you know, to take home to eat with fresh wine at the dime when I was still drinking wine. You know, I, I had a, I brought my 10 speed and I had this little apartment about five kilometers up these twisty roads up this straight up a mountainside essentially. And I would do that three times a week just for the exercise. And uh, it was always easy going to work, but at the end of a full day going back up the hill. Was, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, and, or there would be a bus that, that would go up there. It was a little town at the top and i mean it was just an amazing experience you had this coastal plain that went to the mediterranean so you could go to the beach and the you know right into the midfall or early spring the water was already warm and uh what can i say i mean learning the culture just experiencing the culture
1: was unbelievable and but never thought about pursuing it as a full time thing
0: Well, (laughs) um, you know, I thought, geez, stone carving and playing the harmonica, what better ways to make a living is like the way I like to joke and, you know, harmonica won out. (laughs) But, um, if you want to call it a living, but you know, I've been lucky, I've been very lucky and, you know, I had, I was with a good agency for a while in the early 2000s and they got me a lot of showcase gigs where you play these little theaters and, and, um, you do like a 15, 20 minute showcase. I did a whole bunch of them all over the place in the Northern States and out in the West Coast, all across Canada. And that helped, you know, get my name out there. And then mid, uh, I I became part of Northern Blues for two records. And he also, uh, Fred Litwin helped uh, running Northern Blues, helped get my name out there and stuff. So, And winning some awards and stuff, you know, all that stuff helps. Yeah,
1: winning some awards. I mean, we're talking like, you know, obviously the Harmonica Player of the Year awards, but you also won some competitions.
0: Yeah, well, 1993, they called it, you know, Honer decided to call this thing the World Harmonica Championships. And, you know, uh, 32 people playing in different, um, in the blues category. I can't remember how many people I was competing against in the jazz category for diatonic 10-hole harmonica, but I won in both of those. And uh, Tell me about the mindset I, of going into something like that. I mean, like my usual obsessive self, I (laughs) dove right into it and got a friend to lay down a guitar track. And, you know, I'm the sort of guy and I've talked about this in other interviews. There's certain tunes that I'll work out solos because I think they just work. And because we had such a time limit, you know, I knew I wanted to say this, this and this and tell a story. So, I really worked up a solo for, I think I did Rocket 88, and then just sort of worked, you know, sang one or two verses, and then, you know, tried to build a solo that would tell a story, right? Now, when I play blues, I don't play verbatim solos. There's one or two that I still will, actually. I take that back. Uh, And, um, but basically, that's how I I, I tackled that. that, that.
1: But I presume winning a, 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 a competition, a musical com- competition, especially in the field of harmonica. I mean, that's gotta, that's gotta carry some weight. That that has to help you in your career.
0: <laughs> I guess. I mean, yes, it looks great on a resume. You know, like I say that with a laugh, a uh, smile on my face. I I I, you know, a friend of my sister was a journalist at the Globe and Mail. And so she got it in the paper. Mind you, it was this tiny little article. In fact, it's the only piece of journalism that I, here it is, like it's the, I threw, I went through a whole bunch of stuff and threw out a whole bunch of press stuff. But this little article, I'm holding it up here. Of course, there's no visual but this is, you know, like
1: right? That's not bad.
0: You know, I got a little, you know, two paragraphs mentioned in somewhere in the entertainment section.
1: Okay, so you decide that you want to become a professional musician. What do you have in mind what does that mean to you do you know do you know what what you are hoping to achieve with that
0: uh you know it, like you ask pretty much any blues or jazz person or any creative person it's a labor of love right you're doing something because you love to do it and it gives you satisfaction and makes you uh you know that feeling of accomplish something learning something new and as you know it never stops it, and i'm still trying to figure out new things and new ways to play and taking jazz lessons for understanding how to turns a phrase and stuff with a piano player lately. Um, What was the question again? I mean, do you
1: you have an idea of what you hope to achieve? You say, okay, I'm going to pursue this as a professional career. Do you set goals for yourself? Do you have milestones you want to touch achieve or
0: yeah I mean, seeing the forest for the trees maybe expression comes in here. I don't know if I was that kind of a mindset. I wasn't that focused to sort of see the bigger picture in fact, when I was being booked by a booking agency, they were saying, you know you you can't play in bars because you know you gotta and it was like, no, I wanted to play in bars, so at the time I was doing it, it was like I was sort of forced to use a pseudonym to make up a pseudonym to you know so I could do it right and and he wasn't happy about that but I was just trying to be better musician. I didn't really care about being this huge star or anything like that. I mean, I don't know any, how many harmonica stars do you know, right? Like it it just wasn't on my agenda. I just wanted to be better and yeah, I was happy to get more gigs and be booked for tours and stuff. That was a huge
1: bonus. Okay. So in in this blues world where a lot of harmonica players sound like other harmonica players um you don't yeah uh, also because you don't play <clears throat> well, the same songs Did, does that work for you or against you
0: it works it, it works both ways I mean you know I'm still advertised when I do a show as a blues guy right but obviously my shows are a mishmash I and mean, I'd say 50 percent of my live shows lean on blues but I still play like a 50 percent sort of show of instrumentals which tend to be less bluesy, Um, you know, originals and, and written by people. I know Kevin Bright's been a big contributor of songs, but um, you know, I, I'm super self-critical and, and what happens is it's also, I have to be careful because I also become really critical of other people and what I hear playing. And this is my subjective take on it, but, you know, I hear people put out blues record after blues record and it just, to me, sounds like they're just putting out the same record. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've re-recorded some of my songs, but because I think, you know, they maybe evolved a little bit. I don't have any problems doing with that, that if, you know, I think I'm playing them better or, or there's such a slightly different way to to play it or, um, and, but yeah, I, I, so I'm trying not to repeat myself. And then it, I shoot myself in the foot because I don't put out a lot of records because of that. Cause I just think, oh, I've said that all before, you know, I don't know when I just put out another record of the same kind of stuff. And, and, um, hence, you know, doing a record, I'll talk about maybe, I don't know when, they, when we're going to get around to it, but with Julian Fouth to do a dual record, um, uh, you know, it's a different chapter, different flavor, you know, I sort of, I think I've done enough right now with my
1: band and need to do something different, you know.
0: How, how, when
1: do you know that? I mean, do you just get a, a sense in, in your head that- You just know.
0: I mean, it's just time to move on. It's not that I don't, I love playing with the band and, you know, the trio is playing up, we're doing a show up in Toronto as part of the Hughes Room Live Presents. The trio, guitar, bass, and harmonica, there's, there's just a communication that the three of us have, which is really great. Um, and I'll never miss that. So knowing or not knowing about you know when it's time to move on, you know, it gives me immense pleasure playing with those guys. um And and you know you come to a show and you and you'll sense it and you'll you'll feel that connection that we have. And some some of the tunes very arranged and then just improvising, of course, and other parts of tunes.
1: And then the other thing that's a big part of you is teaching. Yeah. Yeah. When did that happen and what do you get out of it?
0: Oh, well, I mean, it's um, just something I started doing, I guess, in the mid-90s and and grown to love it more and more. Um, you know, the, the more you do it, the better you get at it. And, yeah, I love seeing light bulbs go off on on my students, uh, you know, in, in their... When they get something it's very satisfying and i'm teaching a little less now because i really only want to work with people that are more that have some sort of background rather right? i'm not really interested in taking on beginners and i'm only going to work with people that are going to do the work right you know like if you, if you say okay here do this this and this then you know you gotta you gotta show up two or three weeks later and done the work and cause that's what, that's the only reason to take lessons really. I mean, is to have some accountability and hopefully grow a little bit quicker when you get
1: personalized direction and stuff. So, and how does teaching make you a better player?
0: Um, you know, you could practice what you preach. So, um, you know, I'm reminding myself as I tell my students to, you know, the, what I find is a good way to practice, for instance, you know, and, um, whether it's transcribing or just intonation, you know, tone, whatever it is. And I try, I take those things to heart. You know, if I'm going to tell my students, yeah, I'm going to try to do that. You know, for instance, uh, I'll mention another name, another amazing, like th- probably the maestro of, 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 uh, knowledge and uh, an incredible harmonica player is Joe Felisco. Um, and a great teacher as well. I mean, he's just this like a, an encyclopedia of, of especially pre-war, um, like early rural styles of playing. He's an exclusively a tongue block player, but we had this discussion about overblows. So talk about accountability, and he's not a fan of overblows, and he's, he'll be quick to say that. He's, you know, I'm not going to saying anything against him at all here. But it was a really interesting discussion. It, it actually made me really pay attention that that discussion actually sort of put a kick in my pants and it made me pay attention more and more to my own tone and execution of overblows and just being in pitch all that stuff right so you know yeah and and i still screw them up every now and then but i don't stress about it you know like it's 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 i use them still mainly as passing tones because it's a very, it is as Joe says, it's a very unstable note that you're producing. But I think you know with practice, um, and this is more for the harmonica players out there. But you know you, when you set up the reeds to respond more easily to play overblows, you we have this thing called gapping of the reeds so that they the overblows pop more easily, and it, the the tighter that you set up the gaps, it's at the expense of being able to play more loudly on, on, a, on a traditional just 10-hole blues harmonica. And so I do a compromise gapping, which still allows me to play pretty aggressively um, compared to a guy, let's say Howard, who sets them up a lot closer. He can still sort of play these super fast runs, which I can't and don't really have interest in doing, but um, uh, it allows me to sort of hit the notes harder. And then, but at the expense, occasionally I'll miss an overblow because I haven't gapped it quite as tightly you know but that's sorry that's only for the harmonica players out there but it's kind of like playing heavy gauge strings on a guitar player maybe you know like I leave the gaps a bit you know higher
1: so that I can play louder but um, I don't know like if I was to ask you you know at this stage in your career and and somebody who's always looking to learn other things are there many things that you're working on to get better at
0: I go through phases, as I say, um, where I, you know, sometimes I hardly practice and pick up a harmonica and then I go through phases where I'm just really into it and I'm trying to learn something. Um, and so lately, for instance, i there's this fantastic piano teacher in Toronto, Frank Falco, who he's a jazz piano player and, um, a wonderful teacher and, uh, and I've taken a few lessons with him on very specific subjects, and for a while I took a bunch of lessons, let's say, just focusing on a jazz tune, a really difficult tune to play on the harmonica, which is the Girl from Ipanema, you know. And I'm still trying to learn how to play it, but you know, um, just how to think about working through the chord changes, the understanding of the harmony, all that stuff. I mean, it just it just kind of grows as a musician, right? And and uh, you know, I probably should listen to. More little Walter and at the same time, and, and, you know, you don't want to forget that language, right? It's all part of the vocabulary, but it, it, it just depends where you're at and what you want to do. So.
1: How did, um, how did COVID affect you? How did you navigate through the last couple of years?
0: That's actually, uh, thanks to another harmonica player, Ronnie Shells. He helped me get into during the, I was doing a few webinars in the beginning and then I sort of got lazy, um, I, um, but yeah, like everybody, I mean, it was just kind of sad and depressing that, you know, you can't get out there and play together. And I don't really have any interest of watching people play online. I just mm-hmm. don't. It's just like, I want to, I, I want to see it live. And for that reason, I don't have any interest of really playing, you know, unless someone asks me to, or I'm happy to, but I'm not going to put on a concert. Like, it's just, I just, I, w- doing webinars in another is something that means more to me where you're you're it's sort of like a mini lecture and you got to prepare a bunch of notes and you can still take questions from people in that webinar format where you don't see them but they see you and they can ask questions in a chat box and i'll choose a subject and and that's very i find that very sad how
1: does that happen and, like is there a sponsor is there how does how does one attend one of your webinars. well, you can go to,
0: I have a, yeah, I have a. I mean, um, you know, Ronnie, Shellist, a wonderful traditional harmonica player, is the, is sort of the the master of doing, as far as I know, of doing live webinars. You know, almost weekly, um, and basically, I mean, you know, you learn the la- the language of how to use the Zoom platform, for instance, which is what I use. I mean, you can use different things, but um and away you go i mean and then you know I, I would always do a little preamble video to sort of promote it and just post things on facebook
1: and would it be like would he ask you to say can can you talk next week about a certain topic and is that i mean how does you mean in terms of sorry, subject of the webinar sense? like how no
0: no i would choose things that i wanted to talk about things that i thought were irrelevant i mean you know to me and how i learned and taught or how I learned and uh
1: yeah what can you tell me about harmonica players I mean not I mean either whether it be they be fans or students but there seems to be a very dedicated audience who are harmonica players people who play harmonica from your perspective what tell me about how you see harmonica players
0: um, it depends if you're talking about the fans of the harmonica, yeah, players mainly or the fans, harmonica players. the yeah. fans, yeah. I mean, you know, I any fan is a great is a great is wonderful. It doesn't matter. I mean, I've I've had some of the best. I guess I, I'm sure if this is answering your question, but to sort of frame it in terms of what I do with the instrument versus you know the guys playing more just tra- straight up traditional blues um I had a, a a woman send me an email after after a show I played in the Orangeville Opera House like this is like 12 years ago and she sent me this two paragraph email and it was just like one of the nicest fan mails you could get and it was like well you know I went to see this this concert with a friend of mine I didn't know what to expect and and you know just really we were all prepared to leave an intermission go for a beer and and then not only was I really impressed by the the, the, the showmanship and the musicality and just like what you can do with the harmonica. But it was, anyway, it was just like the nicest email. And, and that's my fan. That's my audience is like, it's not just about playing the harmonica. It's about the music too. I mean, and so I, I'm sort of, again, going a little bit further than your question, but you know, if I reach people emotionally and, and musically that means more to me than being a harmonica player and saying, Oh, look what I can do with the harmonica you know yes there's some virtuosity but it's more about connecting mm-hmm. with you know musically and 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 making people feel something right
1: okay the other thing we talked about about the COVID was that you you started working on a stereo is that correct
0: yeah yeah so one of my I called it uh you know the the crazy kitchen COVID project <laughs> and I mean I've always loved listening to music since I was a teenager, you know, I would have sessions, you'd invite friends over, you'd smoke a joint, turn out the lights and, you know, you're listening to yes or whatever it was. And, um, um, and I soundproof my room a little bit with just tacking foam or egg crates, whatever to the wall, and then covering it with like cheap Indian uh, East Indian fabrics, uh, to make it look presentable. And, and I've always sort of been a sound guy. Uh, to some, you know, obsessed with sound. Uh, One of of my many obsessions, let's say. And so in my living room here, I mean, I know this is just an audio thing. I've, um, you know, I've, I've behind these rugs, I have heavy duty felt, which helps absorb sound and stuff on some of them. And then some panels that I built on just above here. Anyway, so one day I decided in the middle of COVID, it was actually early two summers ago. Um, So it would have been summer of 2021. Uh, To enhance my kitchen stereo, and I had an old stereo, and it started with basically some new speakers and enhancing the, uh, you know, a kitchen is probably the worst place to make a room sound good, but basically I I went all out and built these heavy-duty sound panels, like even bigger than the ones that I have here in my living room, and I kind of made this, like, it's really eccentric. You'd go in here and you go, geez, Carlos, you know, you've lost it. (laughs) But I removed the little kitchen table that was one end by the window facing the river. And I built this kind of shrine and with kind of canvas coated, um, uh, just made out of homemade, looking up YouTube videos about how to make some nice sound panels that are really good for bass absorption. And then I embellished the stereo and ended up kind of beefing up the, the sound equipment I had. Um, but basically, and then put a rug underneath it with padding underneath the rug and then panels on the, some panels on the ceiling and, and move stuff around a bit. And then until it sounded right. And like, I realize I do most of my music listening when I'm in the kitchen cooking, I love cooking. And so I'm three hours, maybe a day almost in the kitchen. Wow. I like to take my time. So that's where I'm doing my listening. So it's great. Cause you know, with the streaming music services, You can quickly advance to the next song. If you don't like something, make up your own playlists. But it's just like, oh, my God. It's like my sanity in a world that's going crazy. Like, it just makes so much sense. Do you think you're a better
1: player now, having gone through COVID, or less a player? Like, I don't know what that that time, the two years of on and off and not gigging as much did to you. I don't know if you practice way more or... I don't know how it affected you as a musician.
0: Um, I think the main thing is just missing playing for people. And of course, you know, with the first few gigs, just how exciting that is for both the performers and the audience, you know. Um, you know, I've always been one to try to get better at what I do, so, you know, I was, uh, yeah, I was taking a few lessons with this piano player just to understand about theory and, and not to, to learn how to play piano. But I, I wouldn't say I was doing more during COVID than than uh, or that, you know, things were that much different coming out of it. Just the appreciation for the fans being there. Mm-hmm. You know, that they are still there and there's still an audience and that there's still live music. I have mixed feelings about touring, mind you, because of things like climate change. And uh, I've toured a lot. I in fact I've almost every year I've gone out west. To BC and Alberta, I have a little run that I can do out there, having done all those showcase gigs and some nice little theaters and community halls mostly. And, um, you know, I've traveled some of those roads so many times. And when I heard last year, you know, there's this one highway that runs, it's the Coca-Cola Highway. It's basically the Trans-Canada. You're you're two hours out of Vancouver, you, you hit Hope, BC in about an hour and a half, two hours. And then, it turns from a four lane into this super six lane highway and the speed limit goes from a hundred to 110 on this super built mega solid highway winding its way up to this um, overpass, really dramatic, beautiful drive I and mean, transport trucks like barreling down at 110 kilometers. You got, you want good weather when you're going up this thing. But when I found out that five bridges got washed out, it was just like, holy yikes. Like, you know, the power of nature mm-hmm. in this mega, mega super highway and five bridges got washed out. It's like there is something wrong. And of course, a lot of other stuff. People dying in, in B.C. and in Canada because of the heat wave, you know, the the floods, the in, fires, in Abbotsford, the fires, It's it's and health now, people's health suffering because of the fires, the smoke. I mean, you know, and poor Canadians, I say that with my tongue on my cheek, were really... And then you have places like Pakistan, they they you know, we're one of the worst polluters in the world. And Canada has one of the reputations, like per capita or per population. And you know, they're the ones that bear the brunt of it. And you know, the huge floods that happened there this past summer. And you know, we're all hypocrites and I'm a hypocrite and 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 but I try to do my best, you know, to do my part, whether it's composting or growing my vegetables or really separating my garbage and recycling and even paying for certain plastics that you can't put out in recycling that will be going, you know, just stuff like that. And so, but I feel, I really have mixed feelings about traveling now and a plane, you know, I think, you know, I, it sounds really excessive, but you know, I don't know, like, you know, traveling for pleasure, you know, maybe save it for visiting family and friends you know, for goods and services, of course, business. But I don't know. You know, that's just one of the many things. But, I mean, it's strange
1: because uh, I've certainly heard a lot of musicians talk about not wanting to tour as much from and for various reasons because of COVID, but yeah. because of the time that they sp- have gotten to spend with their family and enjoying that and realizing, you know, maybe that's more of a priority than being out on the road or whatever. But as a musician who has fans all over the place how do you come come to terms with the possibility of not touring when you know you obviously have fans out west who'd like to see you on a regular basis
0: um well it's i mean it's part of it is mixed it's it's a mixed thing really when i used to have a booking agency um you know i was really keen for several years i was booking my own tours right but it's a lot of work Mm -hmm. When you do, you got to line up all the dominoes so they fall into place so like easily, right? That's a lot of work. I'm in mean, the band. I'm the road manager, the band leader. Got to make sure everyone's happy. You have rooms for, you have single rooms for everybody. And it costs. And also with inflation now, oh my God. Like the cost of traveling and just rooms, everything's gone up. The pay is the same. You know, that's another factor. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's now, it's really just about playing for fun and, and not so much about making a whole bunch of money, but I mean, the day I used to sell a lot of CDs where you would make most of your income and, uh, you know, people are buying less CDs, all that stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I'll miss playing, but, uh, if someone booked me, um, uh, Hey, you know, and, and, um, uh, uh, but I, yeah, I'm, I'm just tired of the, of the, uh, you know, so there's got, I'm doing a four-day tour, for instance, this coming spring, uh, well-paying date, so it's sort of worth the while to do it, and um, I don't know if that's going to be my last tour, I honestly wonder, you know, um, you know, maybe we should just be going out, or donkeys, and playing acoustically, like, (laughs) I mean, okay, no,
1: no, not, but, you know, um, anyway. But it must be worrisome that that you know it's a concern however this is what you do
0: what so I don't understand your question Which
1: part is worrisome well and, I mean and, the fact and, that you know you are a musician you play to people you travel yeah. and and yeah. maybe you're not going to do that anymore that's got to be
0: yeah I mean you know if I got offered to play a festival and, and then you know uh I I do have less interest in, in traveling, being on the road for long periods of time. I mean, I was only ever into really doing two weeks at a time when I did book my little tours and stuff. So, you know, and usually that'd be like five shows a week if you're lucky and to line them up and then, you know, a day or two off somewhere in the middle of there, um, of all the dates. And so that's part of it. It's just getting older and not really being interested in being out for long periods of time on the road. So, um, Yeah. I mean, you know, I can blame it on climate change, but, you know, honestly, it's it's a combination of all those things. Yeah, I mean, I'll miss, uh, uh, I mean, there's plenty of places to play in Ontario. And, uh, yeah, you know, I'm not going to play as regularly, but, you know, being able to go and sit in regularly and maybe do a few more gigs, with, let's say with Julian as well, Julian Fowler, you know, that's, yeah, I got to start networking more and reaching out to other people to play. But, you know, e- e- Harmonica player, you're the last guy to get hired, right? Unless it's your own gig. That's the thing. Unless you're like a Steve Mariner and you play piano, guitar. Right? Everything. everything, You know, and yeah, he's super talented.
1: When are we going to hear that Yes Harmonica tribute album? <laughs> have you worked out any Yes uh, songs uh, on your harmonica? Uh, I can't say I have. <laughs> I'll leave it to the, uh, to the synthesizers the Well, if anybody could do it, I'm sure it would be you. Yeah, right. right. Well, Carlos, thank you so much (laughs) for doing this. It's been a while since we last spoke. Always a pleasure. Yeah,
0: I hope I didn't ramble too much. No,
1: it was great. All right, thank you. All right.
0: Thanks, Michael.
1: Take care.